All right, it's Bon Appetit Foodcast. I'm Adam Rappaport. This week, uh, we've got Nick Jamey on, co-founder of Sweetgreen. Nick started the company in 2007 with his uh, classmates at Georgetown, Nathaniel Rue and Jonathan Newman. Um, yeah, they literally graduated college and are like, all right, we're going to open up a, a cool, fast, casual salad joint. And next thing you know, they've got like 87 locations across the country, 4,000 employees. Um, they got a music festival. And so I was just kind of curious, like, Nick, how the hell did you do all this from running the business to sourcing like sort of really choice uh, prime ingredients across the country from local farmers? Why do all their shops look so cool? Uh, a lot going on with that brand. And we talk, we talk about it all. But before we get to that, um, I just want to mention Nick will be joining us on June 9th at our Healthiest Homecoming event here in New York City. Uh, it's an all-day festival of talks and food and uh, exercise, all sorts of good stuff. Um, we're having everyone from, uh, who do we got on? We got Jenna Wortham, New York Times writer and co-host of the Times podcast, Still Processing, uh, Cookbook Dynamo, Allison Roman. Uh, Grammy Award winning actress Cynthia Erivo. They have Chef Reem Asil from the uh, Bay Area coming out. Uh, we're going to have food by Botanica out in LA. Uh, Two Hands here in New York City. The Little Deb's Oasis upstate in Hudson. It's going to be a really fun, awesome day of sort of, you know, all things wellness related. Uh, so check it out. You can buy tickets at healthyish homecoming.com. That is healthiest-homecoming.com and it is on June 9th here in New York City. And after Nick and I talk, uh, we've got Peter Meehan, writer and former editor of Lucky Peach, RIP. Uh, he reads an essay he wrote for our June-July growing issue called The Barbecue Pit. All right, here is Nick and me. Let's do this. So Nick, I was in the shower this morning thinking about you <laughs> um, and I was like all right what are we going to talk about and I was kind of going through my mind all the things about sweet green and how you sort of run a business obviously and I was like okay you got the real estate deals you got to worry about mm-hmm. got to get that right or else nothing works I imagine agreed you've got the operations in terms of like how do we get all these salads out the door really quickly or people especially New Yorkers who are impatient are like well I'm not coming back there Mm-hmm. You got personnel and hiring, a lot of turnover in this industry, right? Yes, there is. You've got design. You guys have set a high bar where like, if I walk by a sweet green nowadays and if it doesn't look really cool, I'm like, eh. <laughs> <laughs> like what's up with that? Yep. Uh, the food needs to be good. That It does. The most important thing right there. Maybe it's the most important thing. I don't know. And also, you, you're also dealing with all these perishable ingredients that, you know, if I get an avocado in my sweet green salad and it's not like perfectly ripe... Uh, and you also have established a mission as a company in terms of doing good for the community, uh, sort of how food is uh, sourced and grown and all that sort of stuff in the relationship with farmers. And you guys are also, a, I, I kind of feel like you're not from Silicon Valley, but you're a sort of tech, <laughs> tech in touch company. Yeah, we're a tech enabled business. Exactly. And you guys have to be on top of that. And tech is constantly changing. More important than ever. Were you ever like, oh my God, what, the, what did we get ourselves into when you guys started this when you were like 23 years old? You know, when we started Sweetgreen, it was pretty simple. We didn't think about any of that. We didn't know where it would take us, but we were just trying to solve a problem for ourselves. Every single day in college, we were sick of eating the same kind of junk and decided we would build a place ourselves that fit our values and made us feel good. And most importantly, had food that made you feel good, but also create a brand around it that would celebrate that food. And you went to business school. So you you at least had an idea of 
what it takes to run a business, any business, correct? We did go to undergrad business. School. <laughs> oh, no, sorry. You were, you were a business major, I guess. Business major. So, we, we, um, Sweet Green, you could say, is our business school. But and so you opened in D.C., your first one in Georgetown, was it in? In Georgetown, right on M Street, um, right off the campus. Okay. And that's, I'm having grown up in Washington, D.C., that's not cheap real estate there. What made you think that was a good idea out of college? Like, oh, we're going to open a business in like um, the most sort of posh area in Washington, D.C. Yeah. Selling well, salads. I would say we thought it was a good idea because we didn't really know that much. So uh, the naivete, I guess, helped uh, make it a good idea for us. But the first space was is tiny. It's 560 square feet. And it's still there today. And we lived around the corner from it as seniors in college. So we saw this little former little tavern. I don't know if you remember the little tavern burger chains from D.C. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, it was a former little tavern. And, and was, for those who haven't been, little tavern is kind of like White Castle, little steam yes, burgers. And a dollar burger sack. A little green roof sort of. Yeah. They're awesome. So it was one of those, and it had been sitting empty for years. And so we said, perfect, we'll just take it. We didn't know that opening a full scratch-cooking restaurant in 500 square feet was near impossible. We didn't know that there wasn't the right utility. I mean, we just didn't know anything. So we just went after it, and we made it happen. But Okay. I, I, all right. I don't – A, <laughs> first of all, all right, being business students, I, you at least did the math of like, all right, if we're going to be paying – how much, what was the rent when you first opened? Three grand a month. Three grand. Wow, that's cheap. Yeah. <laughs> What's the rent like in Flatiron District up here or, or Meatpacking District? A much scarier number. <laughs> like what? Give me a number. Like 30000 40000 It can be there from thirty to 50000 yeah. A month? Yes. Okay. That's insane. So in D.C. at least- For a much bigger space, though. Yes. But I, so what was the math you did? Like, all right, how many salads do we need to sell a month or a day in order and, and dealing with overhead and food costs and personnel? Like, what, what did you kind of figure out? I assume you did this. Yeah, we wrote a whole business plan with a you know worst case, medium case, and best case scenario and understood how many we'd have to sell. And to be honest, out of all the sweet greens we've opened in 10 years, it was the one we had the least worries about because we were building it for ourselves. We knew that this is what we wanted every day, that our friends, that our girlfriends, that our you know, fellow students, and we were almost just thinking about the Georgetown community to start. Did you think that students would go there? Do yes. Do students walk off campus at Georgetown? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And they, they're, they come from good enough means that they can afford like a, a nice salad yeah they do yeah and so those first few months how did did it go better as planned versus plan what was that biggest hurdle it was between the medium case and the best case so it, we, it did well from day one what was the biggest food challenge like what ingredient posed you the most headaches mm, good question um you know it started simply in the beginning by us just going to the farmer's market and trying to explore what sourcing you know these kind of local and organic ingredients would be and because it wasn't at scale, it wasn't that challenging. We were just sourcing for one restaurant. The challenge in the sourcing really started to happen when we had four, five, six restaurants. Because we couldn't just load up you know, a couple cases from the farmer's market and bring it into the restaurant. We had to figure out how we were going to create a system around this. There's a lot to go through here. But one thing you have done is you've established a mission of sorts. And, and you talk about it on your website and what you strive for. Um, in terms of food and we can get to community and, and, and staffing and stuff also, but in terms of food, like what is what's optimum, what is acceptable, you know, given the constraints in, in terms of what does that spectrum go in terms of uh, supplying all these restaurants? Yeah. So for us, you know, when we started Sweet Green, it was pretty simple. We just wanted to connect people to real food and not just create access to it, make, you know, 
create a place where you could easily get healthy food that you trusted. Um, but the two most important things for us that we actually were trying to create was make healthy food taste good, so make that craveability, but then also just make it cool. You know, for when we started Sweetgreen, we looked around and the most delicious food, the most celebrated food, the most accessible food, the coolest food was all the least healthy. And so for us, when we looked at, you know, eating food that made you feel good, had a branding problem yeah. and it had a taste problem. So those were the, you know, it sounds silly to say that, but that was kind of what we set out to solve. You kind of, well, all right, you didn't answer the question. So I'm going to get back to you on that one. But you did, you got, I will say this, it's interesting how you are sort of at the, uh, the beginning of that wave that where nowadays healthy food is cool all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. And I think you, you guys were certainly a big part of that sort of cresting. And you have websites like Healthyish and stuff that are sort of, yeah, yeah, so much of their MO is that sort of cool stylish factor and they're like oh this is sort of tr i don't say trendy because that's a little demeaning to the food itself but it's sort of very of the moment and feels yes. current um whereas i know when i was growing up in the 70s the notion of going to a health food store was just depressing exactly again but but, but the food though so like, where are you getting the food like what you know all right we're not going to do cisco but we will do this or like gotcha. just, okay. obviously you have so so much you move so much product every day yes especially in a new york what's your busiest new york city store uh, there's a couple. Bryant Park, Nomad. Okay, so Bryant busy. Park is right by 42nd Street in sort of Times Square, Midtown Manhattan. Mm -hmm. How many salads a day will you sell there? I mean, anywhere between two and 3,000 a day. Two and 3,000? Yes. A day? Yes. I mean, it, it depends on the day. But sure, yeah. but in one location? Yes. That's insane. Yeah, okay. People love healthy food now. <laughs> <laughs> so that's... Uh, all right, so again, how do you... How do you, I have no idea. How do you supply that store? Yeah. So the way our supply chain works, and this has evolved over years because every, every year we get a little smarter, we learn more, and we figure out how to do this at even a bigger scale. Um, and every city, we're, we're in eight cities now, 87 restaurants, and every city is its own supply chain. So it's this idea of regionality and seasonality. And so for us, it's about understanding what makes sense for each region. Who are the farmers? What are they growing? What's the soil like? What do people eat in that region? What is indigenous to the soil even? Trying to understand all of those inputs. And our supply chain team, um, we have about a six, seven person supply chain team, spend their time in the field connecting with farmers and growers. And we have a whole hundred point grower ethos that we uh, go through to decide right. how to source from them. Two questions. So then are there certain salads that are available in certain cities that aren't in others? Do oh, yeah. the, what's what's available around there? Yeah, so in all eight regions, we have our core menu that is you know sourced um, from small, medium, and large size organic farmers. But then we have a seasonal menu that is based on those regional inputs, and that changes five times a year, based on the seasons. And in different cities, there's different salads. Okay, so are you dealing with farmers directly? Like, hey, salad guy, we need however many thousands of heads of romaine a month. Can you do that for us? Yeah, so the relationship is direct with the farmers. Okay. And that's part of the model that we that is different for us than a lot of other restaurants at scale, is we work directly with the farmers, small, medium, and large. And it's not about going to your distributor and saying, I need local cucumbers, find them for me wherever you can. Yeah. For us, it's about finding the farmer, understanding how they're growing it, what they're growing, what seed they're using, what they're doing to the soil, all that. And then we use our distributor as a great partner to move those boxes around. But then you're also, but there's obviously, yeah, there's certain things you're not getting locally that you've got to get flown in. And, oh, yeah. and then how do you deal with that? Are you dealing with farms directly or are you dealing with some central distributor who can sort of access you, access you the things you can't get locally? Yeah, so we have direct relationships with some of the largest organic growers in the country. So our lettuce, for example. Lettuce is part of our supply chain that needs to be pretty stable. We can't, you know, one day not have lettuce in your restaurant. Otherwise, we won't be able to open. So we work with some of the larger organic growers and they supply all of our regions. So for us, it's, it's like a yearly contract with them trying to understand 
and uh, even just look at our volumes for the year out. So a lot of these farmers, we work with a year out to plan what they should be planting, what they should be harvesting, at what price we're going to pay. You know, it's really about like contracting the stability of the supply chain. What ingredient provides you the least profit margin? Hmm. Like people, you have to have it on your menu, but you're not making any money off it, basically. That sort of thing. On average, I would say the most volatile ingredient has been avocado recently because of the avocado apocalypse or whatever you want to call it. When the <laughs> that's what we called it internally, but um, yeah, what was the price swing in terms of what you were paying for? Those oh, guys? it went from you know what we were paying to like six times per, what we were paying per case. So it went really? up like sixfold. Yeah. And what? And when, when was that? In what span? Uh, man, it was last year. I believe it was in the fall. Has it gone back down to yes, what it was? it's gone back okay. down. I mean, and there's this, like, this is a much, you could do a whole podcast on avocado supply chain between Mexico and California when the California season ends and you and you transition to Mexican growers uh, and the way things are grown down there and some of the uh, labor issues down there. So it's a much larger issue, but it results in a shortage here in the U.S., or it did last year at least. What percentage of customers want avocado on their salad? Um, I should know this. I think it's between twenty-five and thirty-five percent. Yeah, if you said seventy-five percent, I'd believe you. I yeah. feel like I feel like in America, like everyone wants avocado on everything now. Sorry, so I would say four out of ten of our core salads have avocado in okay. it. Okay, um, I'm thinking of the custom the cu- salads. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, probably forty to fifty percent of our salads have avocado. Yeah, on them. and then how do you ensure that those avocados are ripe every single day for every single salad? Yes. So there is a process with the distributor of when they get them, and there's like ripening rooms, so they only ship you the ones that are ripe. When the shortage But you don't happens, want them too ripe. No, there's a perfect point of ripeness, which they send them to you. We get delivery every single day, sometimes twice a day, in some of these busier restaurants. So it's about uh, the product you can use that day. Wow. That's insane. All right. I'm going to totally change subject. Got a lot to talk about here. Mm-hmm. Um, you, Jonathan, and Nate, three partners. Yep. Which of you three at the time of launch, or maybe after the first one, was like, oh, we need these restaurants to look cool. They need <laughs> to be really well designed. I would say that's definitely something the three of us always agreed on. And even to my point before, part of what we wanted to do was rebrand this type of food that made you feel good, but just create a cool environment that you wanted to come into, that you chose to go spend your money at, to go buy your lunch or your dinner at. And the way the physical space makes you feel is very important. So who gets sign off on design? Because design is a very subjective issue. And what one person thinks is cool, someone else might not agree with. Yes. Uh, I would say overall, the three of us are pretty aligned on our aesthetic and design taste. It's evolved over the years, just like our stores. And that's kind of intentional. We don't want our restaurants to look like they've been stamped out or mm-hmm. they have you know, a certain look. There's a certain energy or vibe we want in the restaurants, but they should feel and look different in different cities and different neighborhoods. Um, every couple of, you know, every five or 10 restaurants, we hire a new architect just to get re-inspired and think about where the design can go. Uh, the design team today reports to me, so I probably spend more time on design, but Nate and John are both very, very involved in it still. When you say design team, how many people on the, are on the team? We have a four-person design team. And they'll deal with everything from graphics to... Yeah, from merchandising to graphics. A lot of the marketing team does, but everything from furniture to you know the lighting plan to yeah. acoustics, everything. It all matters. Yes. Who does the playlist? The playlist. Uh, we do that ourselves. We have a company that helps, like a system that actually distributes, distributes it by restaurant. Uh, Nate, my co-founder, um, spends the most time on the playlist, I would say. What do you guys argue most about? Or what's the one? What's what? What's a recurring point of 
source of an <laughs> argument because I know you guys must argue about something. We do. We argue. Well, you know, I would say at, at a time it was the playlist. <laughs> we used to argue <laughs> about what to put on the playlist. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's 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 more just like you know healthy debates. Uh, I'm trying to think about the last thing we argued about. When you say healthy debates, you mean that figuratively, or you mean that literally about what's healthy or what's not healthy? <laughs> no, no. Well, I guess both. No, no, no. Figuratively, it's uh, you know the fact that there's three of us. It's nice because because it becomes a triple filter. When one person has an idea, or we have to make a decision, it's you know one of us might just take the point of devil's advocate just to bounce the mm -hmm. idea around and make it better. And so we've never you know we rarely like aggressively disagree on things. What have you been wrong about? A lot. <laughs> yeah, I would say, you know, I think being wrong about things and failing is something we embrace at Sweetgreen. And if we're not getting things wrong, we're not trying enough things, or we're not trying hard enough. Things I've gotten wrong, everything from, I mean, even like thinking about certain locations or certain things on the menu or, you know, really every day I'm wrong about something. Have, have, you, have, have there been instances where something has worked out much better than since you sort of said this is not going to work and then it ends up working, you know, that your your partners were behind and you weren't? Those kind of things happen every day to all of us. I think yeah. whether it's what real estate we're picking where one person, you know, there was like a, a few sites in New York that on paper didn't look good when we wanted to sign the lease. And me being from New York, I'm like, trust me, guys, this will work. Yeah. Same thing in L.A. with John and Nate. Um, so sometimes this deeper, nuanced understanding of the decision or the problem it's kind of like the art and science. Sometimes the science doesn't look good on paper, but if you know it in your gut with your experience in the art, you can make that decision. Have you guys closed any locations since you've launched? We have closed one because the lease was up uh, in McLean, Virginia. Oh, really? Yeah. And it was out of all of our restaurants, it was the one, it was the poorest real estate decision. Not the city, but just where the actual site was. It was kind of hidden. You couldn't see it. The parking wasn't great. Uh, and so there was just not great awareness of that and one. That, and that's one of those locations where everyone's in a car. I mean, my sister yes. lives in McLean. Yeah. Um, and it did fine. We could have kept it open, but yeah. we just decided lease is up. Let's probably close it and maybe look for something else in McLean. Community-wise, I mean, obviously one seems like one key of sort of successful real estate is finding neighborhoods that are sort of evolving, gentrifying, et cetera, in terms of getting a good deal. And then on the flip side with restaurants that restaurants receive some criticism is that they open in these neighborhoods, but then they don't sort of serve the community that has been there for a long time. How do you guys deal with that in terms of both customers, staffing, et cetera? And again, this is something you guys talk about in terms of a mission and building a community, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So for us, and we look at our mission, which is just connecting people to real food and building healthier communities, you know that there's a linear way you can take that where it's where we build our restaurants, the food we serve, how we source our food, how we support the farmers in the community, you know, even how we show up with our team members. Our team members learn a lot about healthy food and they get to eat it for free every day. And today we have almost 4,000 team members that do that. And so that actually, if you look at it, is one of the biggest impacts we make. But it's also in a much more dyna dynamic way looking at the effect we can have, not just in the conversation of real food and how we're, again, making this kind of food cooler, you know, something people actually want to engage with, creating that desire for it, but also understanding the impact we can have in the community outside of our four walls. So we've done, we've spent a lot of time on certain food access projects in every city we're in. Which, um, which means what? So really understanding the parts of the city that need, uh, that don't have any access to healthy food, food deserts, if you want to call them, uh, and trying to create solutions where we can then feed them. 
And so in a few cities, Chicago and Boston, we've created mobile markets where we take old city buses that the city has given us and decommissioned and turn them into mobile farmers markets. So fully outfit them, um, brand them, put refrigerators in them and connect with a farmer and a group that will actually source them and run them all day long. So in Chicago, we have a bus and in Boston, we have a bus uh, that actually goes around and feeds anywhere from 30 to 50 different neighborhoods in a day. Wow. Um, and then in LA, we built, we took a freestanding uh, convenience store that had basically been a liquor store called Hank's Mini Mart. Uh, and spent a year and a hundred grand uh, turning it into a healthy market, and it just opened about a month ago. And where is that? Uh, in Inglewood. Okay, that's where the forum is, correct? Yes. In that general area, general I think. Area. I'm still fairly new to LA. I'm learning. <laughs> Never been to a concert there. We'll Google that. I, anyways. Um, oh, speaking of concerts, as if you guys didn't have enough to do running this multi-pronged business with all these headaches—not headaches, but challenges. Mm-hmm. You decided, like, oh, we're just going to start a, a music festival, music and food <laughs> festival, because, like, why wouldn't we want to do that? What the hell were you – I don't get, like, how – what made you think, like, that was a good idea or that you could actually accomplish this? Yeah, I think that's – Which you have. That's the right question because at the moment it really is, like, what the hell are you thinking? Yeah. And we had no business doing it, and, you know, on paper we should have focused on the business. But Sweet Life is called, by the way. Sweet Life Festival. and But at the moment, you know, as we saw this conversation around food just – progressing and getting cooler and cooler. We knew we wanted to engage with our customers in this conversation in cooler ways. So using music uh, and this, you know, what we think is the most experiential, you know, element, like a music concert, a festival, and how we could use that to talk to our customers about food and just have a really fun day. And usually that day that is the fun, the most fun is usually the least healthy. You know, you ever seen what you eat at music festivals normally? And so it started really simply with us just playing, you know, popping up a table and DJing outside our second restaurant, Sucre and DuPont. Uh, my co-founder Nate is a DJ, or used to be at least. Uh, and we just the, that store wasn't doing that well. Our second one, so we decided to DJ How outside. Was that? And Dupont Circle, that that would see. All right, going back to real estate, that mm-hmm. would seem to me like nice neighborhood, a lot of workers around there. That would seem like such an. It's obvious a great neighborhood. Location. We were on the wrong side of the block that hadn't opened yet, so we were the first to open on that side. Where are you on Connecticut? It or was where? right on Connecticut. Uh-huh. So everyone was on the other side, and we were on one side. It was the old Riggs Bank okay. at the time, which yep. is now full of people but we just needed to people needed people to see that we were there to turn up the music so we blasted music you know without a permit just did it every (laughs) weekend and it started to work then behind us is the dupont farmer's market our kitchen door literally opens onto the dupont farmer's market so we decided to play have a concert with 100 people then three months later we did it again with 500 people and then we decided okay let's do this in a much bigger way and Hot Chip was coming through town, so we got them to come and DJ, and we had our first, you know, quote-unquote festival with a 1,000 people in the parking lot there. And what sort of permits and stuff did you need for that? We got permits for you that one. We built, we built a stage. I literally had to go around to the neighborhood getting signatures from anyone that lived within 500 feet. I still have the clipboard. So how, what, how did you sell them? Like, hey, we're going to have this, like, Euro techno sort of party band come well, perform loudly. It was, it was a community loudly. event. There was food. There was activities. What, was, you know, what, it, was, what's, it was from what time? What time? Did you? It was fr- it was all day, all day okay. on Saturday. But by nighttime, it was shut down. Yeah, by seven. Uh huh. So. And what did you do food wise? Sweet green food, yeah. and then we had a bunch of our partners, like you know Nick Wiseman in DC came and did something. Uh, our folks from Lululemon were there helping people learn how to do headstands. You know, it was, it was just <laughs> a funny. It was really really bare bones. Uh, but then from there, we met the guys that own Nine Thirty Club and Meriwether Post Pavilion, yep. and we were talking about doing a much bigger one, like twenty five hundred people. Yeah. And as we were looking at venues, he was like, what are you guys doing? Let's just do this at Meriwether. I have everything built in. You don't have to build any bathrooms or stages. And he said, make me a list of the artists you would want to see. 
We're like, all right, cool. So we make this crazy list of like Jay Z and Phoenix and you know Daft Punk and <laughs> and the Strokes and you know this whole list. And he comes back two weeks later and he's like, the Strokes are interested. They're coming out with a new album. And so that was the Strokes. What that, year was this? This was 2010 or 11. 11, I think. Okay. So it was right when that new album yeah. came out and they hadn't played in DC in six, seven years. And so, you know, we booked the Strokes and then we sold 13,000 tickets. So we went from in a parking lot to 13,000 people at Meriwether Post Pavilion. How many bands total? Eight bands. Eight bands. And that was, again, all that was for, uh, how, how, from what time to what time was that? It was an all-day festival. Okay. Yeah. And over the years, it's gotten bigger to two-day. And um, at one point, we had 25,000 people a day when, you know, Kendrick Lamar and The Weeknd and Calvin Harris. And I mean, I love ideas that start small and grow naturally as opposed to like, oh, we need to make money and what's our business plan? Um, so there was an organicness to this idea. But now it is a business. And is this like profitable for you or is it more of a branding exercise? Or what is the what is the point in your mind of, of Sweet Life now? Yeah, the festival for us was never, you know, meant to be a business. It was uh-huh. always meant to be part of the community, a way to just engage people in the conversation on food and just make it cool. So as we were building this big festival, we'd also take over concessions and replace all the food and, you know, a lot of the junk with not just healthy food. You know, we don't want people eating like salads all day at a festival. Yeah. That's not that's not realistic. But you know, if someone was going to, you know what? F- I don't want a fork when I'm at a festival. I don't want. <laughs> it a needs to be fork. handheld. Yes, yeah, yeah. I want handheld. Um, so we'd have everything from like you know the Rappahannock oyster guys to uh, if there was a fried chicken sandwich, it was someone that was sourcing chickens the right yeah. way, getting rid of soda as much as we can, just bringing in good food from farmers and chefs and just the food you should be eating. Do any sweet greens have uh, fried chicken? No. <laughs> well, you should. Um, beer and wine license. Not today, not today. What 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 would, what would that entail? Uh, you know, it's different in every city and every neighborhood. Mm-hmm. There's different rules, so it's definitely something that we've talked about. And I think having a nice glass of rosé with your salad at night or for lunch on a Friday would be great. Yeah, given uh, well, especially it's interesting now. I feel like that that um, industry community, whatever you want to call it, with between the craft beer movement mm-hmm. in this country, that's now. Uh, if you look at the beer cans and stuff, like cool and fun and hip and has a very high design sensibility, same with the natural wine movement. It feels like that would make sense at a sweet green. Absolutely. It's something we've talked about. And I, I hear selling liquor is profitable also. Seems like it'd be a good business move, wouldn't it? The margins I hear are good on alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> What's interesting, I'm just thinking about a neighborhood like Bryant Park, which is almost exclusively uh, businessy uh, in terms of mm-hmm. office buildings. Let's take this one up. There's one about 10 minutes walk from here at uh, World Trade in, in Tribeca on Greenwich Street. Mm-hmm. Um, what is the, do you know the percentage of business you do lunchtime compared to dinner time? Mm, that one is pretty heavy lunch because the the office building across the street. Okay. Is what I, and I believe yeah. that one is, you know, 60, 40. Are there any locations that do as much dinner traffic as lunch traffic? Oh, yeah. A lot of them. I mean, our, our restaurants are fairly busy at dinner in general. Um, Eating in or taking out? Both. Yeah. Funny enough, a lot of it is fitness driven. So if you look at where our restaurants are, they're close to most fitness things. SoulCycle, Equinox, Yoga Studios. And if you go in at night, if you notice more than half the people are going to or coming from the gym. They're wearing their outdoor voices. They're wearing their outdoor women voices. Or whatever. Yeah. That's right. More OV, I would say. <laughs> Interesting. So, I mean, it's funny. I mean, and I imagine you probably have... A high percentage of diners are solo diners. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think if you if you think about the value proposition of sweet green, of you know if you're eating alone, if you're a solo diner, of like going home and assembling this thing for one person, you have to buy a whole package of lettuce, a whole oh thing. It's like the actual economics and the work for one person versus making it for a family of four. Yeah, 
I'm terrible at and something I always struggle with is food waste. And mm-hmm. if you're so often if yeah, if you're buying a bunch of ingredients and you want to make a sweet green esque salad, you're buying nine different things. You yeah. might use like a quarter of the head of cilantro that you bought and then you're going out the next two nights and then you've got friends come whatever and then all of a sudden you look in the fridge and you've got this wilted head of cilantro a week later and you're like, Oh Yep. Um yeah. And it's like, yeah, I can go there and spend less money and get a better version of what I probably would have made at home. Yeah, that was kind of the, ver- the idea of Sweet Green was to remove the friction from eating this kind of way and just yeah. making this food more accessible and easy. And for us, even as you look at how technology has changed the transaction, today almost 50% of our transactions happen on our app. Oh, wow. So that's people ordering ahead or paying with it or whatever you want, but it, it's this idea that it's just convenience. Yeah. Oh, getting back to the beer and wine. Um, <laughs> see, if you have beer and wine on the menu, then I think you get like more sort of couples and stuff coming to sweet green for dinner like date night emma what do you think emma's like yeah baby you know date night at sweet green sounds like a great idea yeah you know maybe see a movie and then like the sweet because then like i don't want i don't have time to go see a movie and have like a whole hour and a half dinner yeah if you kind of do the math but movie 30 minute dinner glass of wine at sweet green all of a sudden you're talking you know what you can also do now there's a lot of cool i'm just giving you all sorts of advice please keep it coming keep it coming um there's all these cool canned wines out yeah. there. Like, that would be cool also. Yeah, yeah like a little... nice like a nice Ramona with your salad. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Come on. Gosh. <laughs> I'm going to go to – you need any investors? You probably – yeah, you have lots of investors. Um, you said 87 locations now? 87 locations today. Five years from now, how many domestic locations will there be? A lot more, hopefully. But for us, the way we think about it is less in number of restaurants going forward because – Again, the way people are transacting with food is changing quicker than ever. So, you know, for this year, this year for us, the focus is on demand and delivery. So thinking about, it's less about how many restaurants we have and more how many customers can we serve. Does it make sense to have delivery only properties that you don't have to trick out with the design and a desirable That's high rent location? That's exactly part of the plan, yeah. And you would have those, you could have several of those in a city as large as New York and depending on the Yeah, especially the in desire. super dense areas in a place like Midtown, I don't need to open 10 restaurants in Midtown. I can open three incredible, beautiful sweet greens that are flagships and then have a delivery function that you know can just bring the product to you wherever you are. Again, and that gets back to tech. Yeah. But that's what's so fascinating. I mean, again, it, the salads better be tasty. There better be some tech application that, well, I can easily access it that mm-hmm. has all my information you've got to deal with real estate concerns and when it makes sense to open a retail version versus a delivery version. What's next on your plate? Do you have anything? What's, what's in terms of other than opening another sweet green, you've got the music festivals or anything else happening that we don't know about that you're sort of a, a new area you're forging into? Yeah, I would say for us, you know, we're at the tail end of our, uh, we do a lot of chef collaborations and just in general artist collaborations, whether you're a chef, musician, uh, or artist in our restaurants and, we just are in the middle of our Nancy Silverton collaboration, okay. which for me has probably been one of the most exciting ones we've ever done. And Nancy's a chef out at Moza in LA. And what and so collaboration, what is that? And I, you had those cool t-shirts with her on it. Yeah. Um, but what does that entail? What does the collaboration mean? Yeah, so for us, it's finding chefs that are like-minded, that believe the same thing in food that we do and that source a certain way. And uh, and Nancy for us is, you know, a queen among chefs. And she's what she's done for not just California, but, you know, bread and vegetables and she's just created a whole new culture around eating this kind of way um, and so she uh, we created a salad with her on the menu called the Nancy's chop salad which is actually just a version of her famous chop salad so as we thought about 
you know, any kind of salads out there that have existing equity, Nancy's chopped salad or some version of that chopped salad is one. So we wanted to celebrate that and bring those flavors onto the menu and then just celebrate her, have a lot of fun with her. So we had a bunch of fun dinners and parties. And like you said, we put her face on a T-shirt and I wear it once a week. <laughs> so I have it at work. It's in my, it's in my closet at work. Um, well, Nick Jermaine, thanks for stopping by. And um, we will see you at the Healthy-ish Homecoming All Day Fest. Yeah, so it's June 9th here in Brooklyn, um, and you can buy tickets for this awesome all-day fest with, like, speakers and food, and you got Nick Jamay and all sorts <laughs> of other interesting people in the kind of in the healthy-ish community. It's going to be awesome, and you can buy tickets at healthyish-homecoming.com. All right, thanks, Nick. Thanks for having me. If the canopy of stars wasn't so captivating, wasn't like silver glitter spilled on velvet the color of midnight, I might have just given up. It was the kind of damp that turns your bones to glass. A spell of 40-degree weather rolled in on what should have been a swampy summer night, and we'd been outside since the previous afternoon on a patch of grass ringed by mountains huddled around the smoker for warmth. I was cooking in my first barbecue competition in a small town in the Catskill Mountains, and seeking shelter would have meant letting my buddies down. Other, properly prepared teams were asleep in their trailers and trucks, shelters festooned with Old Glory or Infowars stickers. So onward towards dawn, we shivered, checking the schedule and our prep list and debating when to switch from beer to coffee. It could have been anything, I guess. Old cars, ceramics, maybe an interest in flying small planes. Entering middle age, perhaps looking to distract myself from my feelings about how my business partner had shut down the mildly artsy food magazine I edited, I fell into cooking over live fire as a life filler upper. I became a guy who was into barbecue, which, for as true as it is, is still somewhat painful to type. Talking Heads had told us that day was coming when you wake up and ask yourself, well, how did I get here? For the past few years, my family and I have been getting out of New York City on weekends and during the summer to go to an old bungalow encampment in a hollow pin between a swamp and a graveyard. It's our little slice of heaven with trees and a big lawn and other kids for our kids to play with. There are six other families there, and we, whoever's up from the city on a given night, routinely eat dinner communally, a dozen or twice as many people sitting down. A whole pork shoulder or all the ribs they had at the supermarket can disappear without anyone even contemplating seconds. The big annual party, which predates me, is a Labor Day pig roast when everybody's friends and friends of friends cover the lawn in a patchwork of picnic blankets, bring side dishes or desserts, and make sure their kids don't drown in the pond. Over the course of a few summers, I went from being a willing helper to spearheading off-season discussions about how we do next year's pig. Now I initiate get-togethers that necessitate the cooking of whole animals whenever possible. Because, like anything I've ever been into, I need to up the ante every once in a while to get the same kick. It's one thing to cook competently for your family, and it leads, often, to cooking for friends in grander quantities. It was another thing when all of this led me to enter a barbecue competition. Actually, I would have vaguely committed to it, forgotten about it, missed registration, and gotten on with my life if it were not for Jonathan Hooper. Jonathan is a fellow dad at the Upstate Place and the property's founding pitmaster, a guy who is active on Reddit barbecue boards and has a real job in life. Over the years, as we've gotten to know each other, we've undertaken a consistent escalating program of barbecuing bigger animals, or more of the little ones, and the competition felt, in some ways, like a natural next step. We'd been inching towards the cliff's edge. It was time to jump. I wasn't unafraid. I am insecure about my cooking in a performative sense. I am a writer, not a cook. I have no investment in the value of trophies, diplomas, and their ilk. My interests lie more in regional barbecue, the ribs or shoulder or brisket cooked over wood you get at the place down the road, than in the style practiced at competitions, which is a thing apart. While there are many governing bodies that put on barbecue competitions, the Kansas City Barbecue Society is the big dog. 
KCBS says it sanctions 500 meets a year from backyard-only competitions where pros are excluded to invitationals, which require you to have won a trophy to qualify. Four types of meat go before the judges, pork butter shoulder, pork ribs, beef brisket, and chicken. The scoring rubric the judges are educated in via one-day seminar is intended to be region agnostic, as welcoming a vinegary eastern North Carolina pork as a salt and pepper Texas beef, but it is not. Rather, it rewards what's often called competition style, a groupthink simulacrum of many styles. Competition barbecue is sweet and saucy. It is pretty in a manicured post-World War II food styling fashion, uniform and tidy in a way that most real barbecue isn't. The aesthetic prescriptions about how the meat should be presented are campy enough that I think John Waters would dig them. From the rules, prohibited garnishes are lettuce cores, kale stems, and other vegetation, including but not limited to endive and red-tipped lettuce. To summarize the difference between regular and regional barbecue styles in KCBSBBQ, I draw this comparison. In one, you are hosing off your mutt in the driveway. In the other, you are scissoring perfect pom-poms on your purebred's haunches before trotting him around Westminster. The kind of chicken that wins competitions is fashioned from skin on but boneless thighs, tucked into taut little bundles, the final product lacquered in sauce. Jonathan and I apprenticed ourselves to a bearded YouTube guru named Tom Jackson, a.k.a. Chef Tom, to dial in our chicken and ribs game. And it was following him that we finally assented to some of the more arcane practices of winning barbecue. We removed the skin from the thighs, scraped the subcutaneous fat from its underside, then redraped it on the meat after it had brined for 90 minutes. The quantity of honey that Mr. Jackson drizzled over and around his ribs was gratuitous, if not something more unseemly. We ignored our own moral compasses and played along. This is what the competition gods wanted, so we spent a few weeks of the summer gearing up for that kind of cooking. The cynical, carpet-bagging, Yankee egghead reason I cooked at the dog show was so that I could call it a dog show without feeling like someone could snipe me for saying I'd never shown a dog. But just like you don't stumble into owning a show poodle, I wasn't cooking in the competition by accident. I find myself wanting to be out there by the woodpile, by the collection of pits that had grown like the lawn furniture of a nightmare neighbor, the one who starts with one car up on blocks and soon enough is hoarding mounds of unclassifiable trash in his yard. Now my neighbor Jonathan and I are that guy, but for meat cookers. I acknowledge that humanity has collectively been trying to improve on cooking over fire since the first monkey man synapses fired in frustration, asking, geez, can we speed this up a little bit? I know the Instant Pot is the dream that humans disperse themselves around the globe seeking, not the chance to spend another night tending fire with a whole dead animal on top of it. But I grew up in the suburbs, and I've lived in cities ever since, the kind of cities where having a space for a grill is unlikely. So now I can watch a fire forever, in a pit, in the wood stove that heats our cabin. My kids roll their eyes when I tell them about the colors in the fire, the whites and the blues, and what they mean, but then I see them coloring the fire in their drawings with those pencils, hues I never reach for in my Duraflame youth. I'd buy albums of the fire's hisses and pops to listen to in my city apartment. The roar of a bonfire, the way its heat pushes you away before you realize the warmth of the day has retreated, and there are bats overhead, and suddenly you want that sear on your shins, that orange glow turning your cheeks red. Yes, please. I liked that cooking over fire was uncertain. Writing cookbooks, I'd spent years developing a facility with other kinds of cooking that I could be assured would turn out. I know most of what a wok does on a home stove, how a 12-inch non-stick pan heats up, how long it takes to melt onions. But for a few years, I didn't know how the meat would turn out, how the fire would behave, if we'd be conquering heroes or idiots who'd burned or undercooked dinner. It was fun, which is a dumb and easy word, but an elusive feeling at certain times in your life. The competition was held on a field Honus Wagner is rumored to have played some baseball on in a Catskill mountain town called Fleischmann's. The townsfolk, now mostly Hasidic Jews, eyed us as we drove in, and I noticed we didn't have the matching t-shirts or gleaming five-figure rigs that many of the other competitors did. We had a rented U-Haul pickup and a rickety but beautiful Texas-style smoker I bought off of Austin barbecue godhead Tom Nicolait. 
And maybe it was all those weekends full of meat play, those 3 a.m. wake-ups, all the YouTube video watching and looking at cookbooks, but I found myself caring a little bit about winning something. Maybe it was not wanting to return home looking like schmucks, or wanting to at least be schmucks who had some hardware to show for it. Maybe it was the fact that I've never won an award for anything, despite being in a business that gives out a lot of medals. When judgment was ready to be meted out, all of the deliberations and score calculations happened in private. The competitors gathered in a semicircle in front of a tiny stage as the organizers went through the categories, doling out trophies and cash prizes. We had undercooked our ribs. We pulled them too early, and they weren't as tender as they should have been. And our decision to dress our pork shoulder in the vinegary Eastern North Carolina style was a recipe for losing against the ketchupy confectionery style more proven to win. And we got buried. So it was all riding on chicken and brisket. I was confronted with pride and creation while sitting there, something I feel congenitally averse to. But our chicken was good. My teammate Mark Eibold deserved to win something. He's not a barbecue idiot like I am, but he had dutifully and beautifully scraped the underside of the chicken skin clean in the early morning and had done an exceptional job as our lettuce fluffer, creating gorgeous and rules-compliant carpets of greenery to present the meat on. We had been educated in the style of Texas barbecue by Micklewaite, one of the finest practitioners of the form, so we imitated his brisket as well we could, but shellacked the burnt ends with the sweet sauce in a way that I could imagine our other chef Tom, the one from YouTube, revving his Harley for. Teammate Seth Prouty, also a civilian, had meticulously stoked the fire and split wood quietly in the dark as he shepherded the meat towards Dundas for more than 12 hours. Royal Hooper, Jonathan's then 11-year-old son, rounded out the team. He was there for some sort of father-son bonding opportunity, but rather than be pressed into indentured servitude as I'd hoped, Royal succeeded mainly in showing how much better he was at sleeping than the rest of us. When, early in the morning, the event organizers apologetically parked the generator for a mechanical bull right next to our tent, there's a carnival aspect to some of these competitions, but that all gets underway after the serious cooking has happened. He goosed free rides for himself on it for the rest of the day. Still, we sent Royal up to collect our trophies. Third place in chicken, second place in brisket. In a field of 17 competitors, these were victories, and the couple who ran the competition couldn't have been kinder or more complimentary about our finish when we visited the tent to claim our prize money. They said that placing as we did in our first pro competition was a guarantee we'd be back for more. It wasn't, which isn't to say we won't. There wasn't a gregarious community of like-minded cooks or the chance to expand our minds tasting other barbecue that is part of the promise of most food to-get-togethers. The hours sucked and the pay was bad. But we didn't objectively fail. We didn't lose any toes to frostbite. There was a moment of cow scratching herself against a fence post-satisfaction in the molten yolk of an egg and cheese sandwich that warmed us as dawn broke, and another of revelation when a pan of pork scraps, water, and salt transmuted itself, as teammate Mark said it would, into a pan of carnitas, meat snacks to fish out with 30 fingers as the competition drew to a close. It was this, an excuse to gather around the fire, to cook with friends, and to do funny things to meet, possibly for praise. It wasn't the best of times, but it wasn't the worst either. The Bon Appetit Foodcast is produced by Carrie Polis and Christina Che and produced and edited by Emma Wartsman. Our theme music is by Nathaniel Wartsman. We have new episodes every Wednesday, and if you want to tell us about this or any other episode, email us at bonappetitfoodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.